Hello Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Greg. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in September in our Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. The month of September marks the end of summer and the beginning of autumn. Although many might expect that autumn begins at the start of the month, astronomers use the autumnal equinox, which occurs on the 23rd, to signal the beginning of autumn. An equinox occurs when the sun crosses the celestial equator, the projection of the Earth's equator in space. At the autumnal equinox in the northern hemisphere, the sun crosses from the north to south. The hours of daylight and darkness will be at their most equal on the 23rd, but, more importantly, we will begin to have longer hours of darkness from there on out, and so longer nights for stargazing. For those living in the southern hemisphere, September the 23rd signals the end of winter and the beginning of spring, with the number of daylight hours steadily increasing. On the night of the 14th, stargazers will be treated to a rare lunar occultation of the distant ice giant Uranus. An occultation occurs when one celestial object passes in front of another, blocking it from view. In this event, the moon will pass in front of the planet Uranus and will block it from our view. The occultation begins at 10.27pm, when Uranus will disappear behind the sunlit portion of the moon before reappearing on the unlit side at around 11.20pm. Exact timings will vary for your location, so be sure to check with a stargazing app or an online star map such as Stellarium to determine the timings for your location. You will need a pair of binoculars or a telescope to enjoy this occultation. Just under 80% of the lunar surface will be lit, which will make observations a bit more challenging. Fingers crossed for clear skies, but if you do miss this event, there will be another opportunity in December. Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system, reaches opposition on the 26th of September, making this the best time to have a look at the king of the planets. When a planet is in opposition, it means the Earth is directly between it and the Sun, making the planet appear bigger and brighter to us. Jupiter will be bright enough that it will be visible to the naked eye, but your best views of the planet will be through a pair of binoculars or a telescope. Through a telescope, you might be able to see the bright and dark bands that wrap their way around the planet. These are called the belts and are regions where the gas in Jupiter's atmosphere is sinking downwards. Jupiter's atmosphere is dominated by hydrogen and helium, while the rest is made up of compounds such as methane, ammonia and water. It's these compounds that form the colourful clouds that give Jupiter its distinctive stripy appearance. While you're gazing at the planet, direct your attention off to the sides and see if you can spot the four largest moons of Jupiter, the Galilean moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. The icy moon Europa is believed to contain a saltwater ocean beneath its icy surface and is one of the most promising places in our solar system in the search for life beyond our home planet. Deep sky objects are great to look out for too as we head into the longer and darker nights, especially at the new moon which falls on the 25th this month. The North American Nebula NGC 7000, the Crescent Nebula NGC 6888, the Blinking Planetary Nebula NGC 6826 and the Fireworks Galaxy NGC 6946 are all visible in the vicinity of the star Deneb in the constellation of Cygnus and are best viewed through a telescope. 
An ultra-high contrast filter may help you see these beautiful objects in more detail as they isolate and pick out specific colours of light, characteristic of hydrogen and oxygen, which are strongly emitted by planetary and most emission nebulae. If you're keen to look at some stellar clusters, then you're in luck, because the open star cluster M39 also lies within the vicinity of Deneb. The cluster lies around 800 light-years away from us, and 30 stars have been proven to be members of this cluster. If you're up for a challenge, and if you've got really good observing conditions, see if you can spot this cluster with the unaided eye. For keen stargazers, there's nothing more frustrating than clouds popping up in the night sky, unless you're in the southern hemisphere, and the clouds you're looking at are the large and small Magellanic clouds, in which case you'll be delighted. Appearing as fuzzy clouds in the southern sky, they might seem to belong to our own galaxy, but they are in fact galaxies of their own and are satellite galaxies of the Milky Way. Both galaxies are pretty far from us. The large Magellanic cloud lies around 180,000 light years from Earth, while the smaller Magellanic cloud lies around 200,000 light years from Earth. Located in a galaxy far, far away, well, at least in the large Magellanic cloud, you'll find a massive star-forming region called the Tarantula Nebula. It's a region so massive that if it was shifted to the location of the Orion Nebula inside our home galaxy, the Tarantula Nebula would cover a quarter of the sky and would be visible during the day. After admiring these galactic clouds, you can return your attention closer to home and look at a stellar swarm. Lying close to the small Magellanic cloud is the globular cluster 47 Tucani, or 47 Tuc for short. This breathtaking cluster is home to hundreds of thousands of stars, all tightly bound by gravity. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. Alright, well it's now time for the cosmic news section of our podcast and joining us today is Greg who is back after a two and a half year, more than two and a half year. Yes, uh, two and a half years since I've done one of these. I'm, I haven't been out of the observatory that long. No. Uh, working in a different team, not working in the education team anymore, public team instead. Um, but yeah, it's been quite a while so I'm very, very glad to be back to, uh, to do one of these uh, podcasts with you. Brilliant, welcome back. So shall we quickly go over the results of last month's poll? Oh, absolutely, yes. I'd be very interested to hear. Go on. So last month, myself and Jake were talking about the James Webb Space Telescope. We did just the one news story because it was such a big news story. And instead, we asked everyone to vote on their favourite image of the images we spoke about. Ah, fantastic. And I can reveal that by a massive margin, um, it was the Carina Nebula. Oh, interesting, yeah. interesting. Yeah, very, very colourful, uh, absolutely beautiful, um, and fantastic to compare against the, the Hubble Space Telescope image of the same place and see how much has improved in that image. Now, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, very good choice. Not that it was a bad choice with those set of images. That's true. I do think the Queen of Nebula was one that I was describing, so even though we weren't competing, <laughs> I'm going to take it as a win. <laughs> uh, of course. Yes, yes, one for me, zero for Jake. But yes, they were all beautiful images. <laughs> so, what have we got in the news uh, this month? Are you, do you want to go first? Yes, I would love to go first. And what I wanted to talk about this month is liquid mirror telescopes. 
Liquid mirror telescopes, those are alien to me. What are liquid mirror telescopes? So liquid mirror telescopes are telescopes that rather than having a solid mirror made of, of glass or mirror, you know, rather than having a solid mirror, have a mirror which is liquid. So this is a new story about a new liquid mirror telescope that's just opened in India, but the concept of them has been around for a while. Um, Isaac Newton was actually the first person to note that if you have a a container of liquid and you spin it at just the right rate, it will form itself into a little parabolic dish, which is the perfect mirror shape for a telescope. Um, he, because of the technology at the time, couldn't make a telescope out of it, but he did note that it could happen. The first person to actually successfully make a working model of a telescope using this method was called Henry Skay. Uh, he was born in Britain, but emigrated to New Zealand and did this work in New Zealand. That was in the 1800s, in 1872. It's quite so, a while ago. Uh, yeah, it didn't work particularly well, but, but he did make a, a test model of it. And so you spin any dish of liquid, it'll form this parabolic shape. You can try it at home if you like, you might make a mess. But obviously for, <laughs> for a parabolic dish to reflect light, it needs to, needs to be shiny. So you can't use just any liquid. Uh, what they tend to use is liquid mercury. Mercury, yeah, yeah. that would make sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which reflects light almost as well as silver. Oh, fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Um, so you need to have it rotating at a perfectly constant rate and you need to uh, be in a sort of place with no vibrations because if you yes. if you knock it it'll ripple because it's a liquid yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah so they because they're so challenging to work with it's not a technology that's really had had much done on it compared to compared to real mirrors solid well, mirrors I, I mean I can already see a bit of a potential design flaw which is presumably these things have to stay perfectly level because if you have if you try and tilt your mirror off to one side in order to try to to look at something elsewhere in the sky than directly overhead all your liquid's going to end up on one end of your uh, your device and that's not going to work presumably that's, that's true yeah and at some point all your liquid mercury will spill out onto the floor and it's a bit of a health hazard so it is a telescope <laughs> It's a telescope that can only look straight up. Right. Yes. But there are advantages to that sort of telescope. They are incredibly cheap compared to similar sized solid lens or solid mirrored telescopes. Um, no need for a mount, basically. Yeah. yeah. Or mm -hmm. at least no need for a mount that can move. Yeah, because it, it can't do any tracking. Um, they work out sort of like a fraction, like about a percent of the cost of a, a standard telescope of the same aperture size. But they are cheap and they're fairly simple to build once you've got the concept down and really once you've got a good location for it as well. So this new telescope, it is four meters wide and it's going to be in the Himalayas mm -hmm. away from any kind of human interference. So there aren't roads with lorries going past to give you all the ripples to ruin your nice, smooth, reflective surface. And it's 50 liters of mercury they've got in this big sort of spinning dish. That's quite a large amount of mercury. It is, yeah. 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 It's, um, I looked up some videos of it, of it in action, and it is very satisfying to watch. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I would recommend it. It's very soothing. Oh, oh good, good to know. I'll look later. <laughs> so, a telescope that can only look directly overhead, at the point called the zenith, directly over our heads, what would you use a telescope like that for? This one is going to be focusing on transient objects. So it can only look directly overhead, but each night it can look at the same patch of sky again. And it's the uh, plan to be a five-year project. 
And so it can compare one night sky to the next and look at objects that may have appeared or disappeared. So it's focusing on supernova. Oh, that's, like a, that. that's amazing. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. It is very cool, yes. <laughs> and so there have been a few in the past. The biggest one ever was six metres wide. It was in Canada. And again, it was built for only about a million pounds, I believe. That's considerably cheaper than, than almost any professional grade telescope that you'll find out there, with the exception of ones which have basically been made out of sort of bits that have been bought without being sort of uh, um, designed for purpose. They're sort of bits that were bought off the shelf, as it were. Like a scavenged so, yeah. telescope. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this one, even in this quite complex site in the Himalayas, and the project has had quite a few delays due to COVID and due to other complications, mm -hmm. only 1.6 million pounds from start to finish, the cost of the telescope, this four meter wide telescope. So they are cheap. Mm. Um, Absolutely. It may sound like a lot of money, but compared to almost any pro other project out there, that's remarkably small. And there have been suggestions about other uses of these liquid mirror telescopes, including taking them to the moon. Okay. Taking to the moon. So what, what would be the purpose of putting one of these on the surface of the moon then? Well, a telescope on the moon would be useful for a number of reasons. The moon has no atmosphere to get in your way of what you're observing. It has no, no light pollution or no pollution of any kind because there's no atmosphere up there. It's not seismically active in the same way the Earth is, so you no. haven't got any vibrations of that level. So a few people have suggested putting a telescope on the moon, particularly putting a very, very large telescope on yes. the moon. Yeah. Um, obviously, we'd have to take the telescope to the moon. Yes. So a conventional telescope would be very, very heavy and some parts of it are very delicate. You can't bend things or break things during launch or landing. Yep. So there's been some suggestions that instead of taking all these lenses and mirrors of a conventional massive telescope to the moon, we could take liquid to the moon because you can't break liquid on the way. That's, you would find it difficult. That is true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Potentially that solves a, a, a big transport problem. Yeah, mm. I can see that. It wouldn't work with liquid mercury, because liquid mercury would freeze on the surface of the moon. Oh yes, yeah, mm. you have to worry about that, fair enough. Yes, and it's also incredibly heavy. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> True. But there have been some suggestions to use other materials instead. So some ionic liquids, some molten salts, uh, stay liquid at incredibly low temperatures mm. and wouldn't evaporate, all, even in the sort of almost vacuum of the moon. So as long um, as you could find one reflective enough. Yes, there's been a suggestion that most, most ionic liquids are clear, mm. but you could put a coating of silver on top of your ionic liquid, thin enough that it still acts as a liquid. I see. So it would still reflect light. Uh, they have, there's names for these, these suggested telescopes. So the one in India, by the way, is called the International Liquid Mirror Telescope, the mm. ILMT. The one on the moon, this proposal for one on the moon, they suggested it could be 100 metres in diameter. Yeah. Which would be massive. Absolutely. And they want to call it the ultimately large telescope, the ULT. Oh, of course they do. Yes, <laughs> yes absolutely. Yes, not, not enough to have the very large, the extremely large, and at one point the now cancelled overwhelmingly large, we now have to have the ultimately large. Although that does cause us a bit of a problem when we come up with a 150 metre telescope and have to come up with a name which is bigger than ultimately. Mm -hmm. hmm. Right. for another day. <laughs> From for future astronomers. Indeed, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But the, they suggest that the ultimately large telescope, if it is built, could see things 100 times fainter than James Webb can currently see. Considering the, the results that James Webb has already produced and it's barely even gotten started, that would be utterly incredible. 
that would be absolutely amazing to have such an incredibly large telescope out there. Right. This is obviously quite far in the future. This telescope, the International Liquid Mirror Telescope, has only just been completed. Uh, it's received first light, but it hasn't yet started making observations mm. because it's currently the rainy season in oh, the Himalayas. Yeah, not ideal. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so it will run from October to June each year. And apparently we'll have quite clear skies in that part of the Himalayas between October and June. But in this part of the year, it's, it's not suitable. No idea. No. <laughs> <laughs> I had one other moon telescope fact. Oh, one of the moon. T- it's one of the moon telescope facts. Go on then. So there's proposals for a liquid mirror telescope on the moon. Mm. There's also proposals for a radio telescope on the moon. Yes. Um, have you read about these using a crater as your parabolic dish? Yes. Which I think is just so smart. So they were suggesting taking like a sort of a net, basically, and having it being deployed by robots and laying it gently over a crater that's the perfect depth and width, so it makes a nice parabolic shape, and then you've got. Again, it solves the problem of transporting a fully formed parabolic dish to the moon. Absolutely, and it's uh, it's sort of similar to the the unfortunately recently decommissioned uh, Arecibo um, telescope, and that was sort of in sort of in this sort of divot in the ground. It's a bit dismissive to call it a divot when it's about yes. hundred meters across, <laughs> but nonetheless, it's a, a huge sort of uh, hole in the ground, shall we say? And yeah, absolutely, same sort of idea, but instead on the surface of the moon. Mm. Very interesting. Well, if you are going to get out to the moon to operate these telescopes, um, ideally, you're going to want to be able to get people out there. And my story for this month uh, is, in fact, that we are going back to the moon. We are. We're going back to the moon. After almost 50 years since the last landing on the surface of the moon, the first of the missions preparing to get back to there should hopefully have launched just a few days ago when this podcast comes out. Mm-hmm. So it should have gone out on the 29th of August, fingers crossed. I was going to say, I hope you've not cursed it by... I'm almost certainly I have, yes, absolutely. But fingers crossed, uh, people listening to us now will be able to uh, tell us actually, yes... The Artemis 1 mission has indeed been launched. So the moon, of course, very, very special place to us, very important. It's the only other place in the entirety of the universe that we've landed on. 1969 through 1972, we had 12 astronauts, starting with Neil Armstrong and ending with Gene Cernan. Uh, Would have been 14 astronauts, um, but something went a bit wrong with Apollo 13. That didn't go quite go so well. but the point is that no one has been back, not in almost 50 years. It's going to be 50 years this December that Gene Cernan took the first, sorry, final steps on the surface of the moon. We are celebrating that here at the observatory. We absolutely are. Um, and the reasons for us not going back, they're complicated. Some of them are political, most of them are economical. When it comes down to it, the, the cost of getting to the moon was absolutely vast. This was back when, in a time when uh, NASA was taking up a vast fraction of uh, the GDP, so the, the money of the entirety of the United States of America. It was a, an incredibly large project. And the fact is that that was unsustainable. It could only be done for a certain period of time. What's more, public interest in getting back to the moon sort of waned quite considerably. The Apollo 11 launch was one of the most, if not the biggest television event ever. But Apollo 12? 
14? Apollo 17? Barely anyone was watching. And that's a real shame, because incredible things were still happening on the surface of the moon. It, it's kind of ridiculous that it was old by the time we went there for the sixth time. That seems a bit ridiculous. But at the same time, from the public's point of view, we'd kind of been there, done that. What was the point? Now, the fact is there are lots of other reasons to go back to the moon. Um, and it's been on the cards for an extremely long time that we do go back to the moon. And finally, finally, it's going to be happening. So, the mission that's going out uh, from our point of view in two weeks, <laughs> from your point of view, hopefully listening, a few days ago, um, that is Artemis 1. These are the Artemis missions. This is the, the new Apollo program, as it were, to get back to the surface of the moon. There are lots and lots of different stages to these missions. Um, a lot of testing has already occurred on the ground. This is going to be the first launch, and it's a big one. It's jumping quite a bit further into the process than Apollo did. Apollo was slightly more baby steps, perhaps understandably. Um, uh, this one jumping right into not quite the deep end, but pretty close. There aren't going to be any people on this one, so this is going to be an uncrewed uh, mission. Um, and actually, as we are currently speaking, as we were recording this podcast, Artemis 1 is currently sat on the launch pad. No um, Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is part of a dress rehearsal. This isn't actually the, the, the direct preparation for the launch yet, but uh, still, dress rehearsal at the moment, occurring right at the very moment, for the expected launch on August 29th. Now, this mission is going to last almost a month, which is a very long time for any of the Apollo missions. None of them lasted that long. Um, it's going to launch from the uh, Kennedy Space Center and head out almost immediately across to the moon. Something will take about three to four days in order to get there. Um, once there, it's actually going to dive all the way down to only 100 kilometers from the lunar surface. Uh, basically, a test run for what would happen uh, were the module with people in it actually going down to the surface. Um, so this is simulating the last approach just before the, cu the crude uh, module gets dropped down to the surface. And then it's going to spend um, a week in a wide orbit around the moon before it eventually uh, returns back another three or four days, splashing down in the Pacific Ocean about 25 days after it originally launched. Now it's launching on the space launch system. Now there have been all sorts of different uh, rockets and various different new systems that have been created over the course of the last few years, um, many of them by private companies, so people like SpaceX, um, that have been creating bigger and bigger and bigger systems. Now, uh, some are focusing on reusable systems in order to try to keep costs down. That's what SpaceX is currently going uh, with its uh, Falcon Heavy and that sort of thing. Whereas the Space Launch System uh, is instead going for a non-reusable system. So it's uh, launched once and it's done. Um, and it's been developed by NASA since 2011. This is the most powerful rocket that NASA has ever built, considerably more powerful than the Saturn V, about 15% more powerful, um, than took the Apollo missions out to the moon in the first place. Um, now, the Space Launch System has had problems. It's about five years overdue at the moment, um, and well over budget. Now, this is not that unusual, unfortunately, for space missions. No matter how well you plan, space missions always end up being 
over time, over budget, just because it is so incredibly complex a system to produce. Um, and there were some concerns that the space launch system would actually not be prepared in time, and thought about whether it was going to go on a different uh, launch system, but when it came down to it, really the space launch system was what Artemis was designed for. Yeah. Um, and it seems to have just managed to get in under the wire, so it is going to be launching on the space launch system as planned. Now, uh, the Artemis missions are a whole range of different missions, just like the Apollo missions were. There are going to be quite a lot of them. Um, and the future missions include Artemis 2, which is going to be the first time that uh, people were actually going to be on one of these missions. That won't be a landing, it will be a flyby, um, and then bringing them back to the surface of the Earth. It's going to be Artemis 3, which is going to be the first one that actually lands on the surface of the Moon, and that is planned for 2025. Um, another thing which is intricately linked with the Artemis missions is the Gateway system. So this is uh, the Lunar Gateway, which is a small space station that's going to be placed in orbit around the Moon. The idea of this being that the, the, um, the systems that actually get down to the surface would actually be potentially launched from the Gateway instead of from uh, Earth and then direct to the Moon. Again, there are concerns that that might not be a great way of doing it. What exactly do you gain from having a lunar gateway that you don't get from just doing a direct mission? But there are reasons why uh, NASA has gone in that direction. And that's expected to be launched in 2024 with various different additions made to it, just like the International Space Station was over the course of several years. Now, I'll be honest. I actually have my doubts about this mission. <laughs> Greg, you can't say that. I know, I know. I was, until very recently, quite uh, sceptical that the Artemis missions would actually be able to get to the moon by 2025. I figured that was a very small timescale for what is an absolutely massive project. It looks like... I was wrong to be sceptical. It looks like it is actually going to be achievable. And it looks like humans may actually be walking on the surface of the moon in about three years' time, which is really very impressive. There are um, a few things about the Artemis missions that are sort of fixing, shall we say, some issues with the Apollo missions. The Apollo missions were uh, crewed almost entirely by um, test pilots, mostly from the armed forces originally. Um, and that means that there was a strong bias, particularly given we, are, we were in the 1960s in America, there was a strong bias towards white men. Um, and that means that there were no, there have been no women and no people of any other ethnicity that have actually walked on the surface of the moon. Mm -hmm. And that is a massive shame and, and should not have occurred. There were reasons why it occurred, but they weren't all good ones. Um, this is going to be sorted this time. So uh, the, the first women, first people of other ethnicities are going to be going to the moon as part of the Artemis missions. Um, the diversity has been considerably changed in this particular set of missions, <laughs> which is very, very much for, uh, for the best. Um, one thing that you might be wondering is exactly what people were thinking in 1972. 
why are we bothering to go? Um, what's the point in getting to the surface of the moon? And one of the main sort of long-term aims of the Artemis missions and missions beyond that um, is the establishment of a semi-permanently crewed lunar base with the intention of allowing for scientific exploration to occur on the surface of the moon constantly with humans, which is far, far, far more efficient than any robot that we can send. Uh, when you send missions out to uh, Mars, for example, the rovers that are on Mars at the moment, Curiosity, Perseverance, it takes them 10 years to do the equivalent of a marathon. Humans could do that in a tiny, tiny fraction of the time, and they can make decisions on the fly, which robots simply can't. Um, so the efficiency of exploration, the amount of information that we will get in such an incredibly short period of time would be absolutely massive if we can get lots of people or a fair number of people on the surface of the moon constantly. And of course, going to the moon, our nearest neighbour, is a stepping stone to going to other places. So uh, the lunar gateway and the lunar base might well be uh, launching places for missions out to Mars. Mm -hmm. Now, we are probably still a few decades off doing that. Again, this is my sceptical side coming out saying, <laughs> let's be honest, we're probably still 30 years off landing a person on the surface of Mars. But there are people who are a lot more optimistic and say more like a decade. Who knows? And this may be the way to get to that sort of aim um, by having human uh, colonies, not massive numbers of people, but a small number of people on the surface of the moon, potentially by the end of the decade is absolutely incredible. Important question for you, Greg. Mm. Would you go to the moon? <laughs> right. This is very much connected to a similar question, which is, would you go to space? And um, I would absolutely love to be in space, but I would not like to go to space. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stand roller coasters, which means it's very unlikely that I would like to be strapped to what is essentially a controlled bomb and then launched out into space. Mm. Um, that doesn't really appeal to me. Being out there would be absolutely amazing, but it's the commute. Let's be honest, yeah. it's the commute. We don't want mm. to commute. I think I have similar feelings because yeah. I, I get very claustrophobic and some of these launch vehicles are very tight uh, very small it's indeed. very yeah. small yeah. if I could be unconscious you know <laughs> <laughs> they could knock us out pop us in the launch system and then wake us up when we're in space right yeah lovely so I would also go to space yeah. but yes okay. it would be a struggle yes be... <laughs> another question for you Greg mm. a more sensible question mm. aside from us going to the moon so when they do return to the moon and they have this crude space there, what sort of science experiments will they be conducting? What are they looking at? Well, uh, there are going to be all sorts of things that the, the astronauts are going to be doing on the surface of the moon. A lot of it is going to be associated with geology of the moon, trying to understand how the moon formed. Um, but also the, the surface of the moon acts uh, very much like a, a fantastic record of the solar system. Because it doesn't have wind, it doesn't have rain, it doesn't have all of the normal processes that mess things around on the surface of the Earth, uh, its surface is a bit like a, a sticky trap, which is held on to a record of everything that's happened in the solar system since its formation about 3.8 billion years ago. So 
it's a way to potentially study how the sun has changed over time, uh, how the, the environment of the solar system has changed over time, all sorts of things like that. Um, but we don't actually have to wait even until the crewed mission in order to actually have some science coming back from this. Because in place of all of the additional weight that would be required to take people up into space, um, a large number of CubeSats are being sent up in this Artemis 1 mission going to be launched out into space oh, wow. um, uh, with the intention of doing some science experiments to sort of... Uh, Engineers, when they're sending things out into space, they want to be as efficient as they possibly can be. Um, and if they've got some weight left over, mm -hmm. why not cram some more science experiments in and get get our money's worth, as it were. Fair enough. It's yeah. a lot of work getting anything into space. Yeah, you might as well use it properly. Indeed. So yes, that is our uh, two stories for uh, for this month. Fantastic. So we have our liquid mirror telescopes, which are insane, or the return to the moon. Okay, well, that's all we've got for you this month. Just a reminder that we will be launching our Twitter poll when the podcast goes live at the start of September. So go to Twitter at ROG Astronomers and vote for which news story is your personal favourite for this month. And remember, of course, to keep looking up. <laughs>